Hello, everyone. This is Karin Takar, and welcome to the Zenergy Podcast. Over the past decade, India has done an impressive job of integrating renewable energy into its energy mix. For this Fulbright podcast series, I sought to investigate the enabling factors and potential of India's global leadership in renewable energy with the focus on solar. This Fulbright series is broken down into four seasons. This season, we capture the views of high-level officials of the Indian government and energy delegates from African countries looking to India as support. We'll try and understand how India's continued progress in renewable energy development can improve its leadership position in the world. In this episode, I will be speaking with the Honorable Tharanjit Sandhu, who is the current Indian ambassador to the U.S. Ambassador Sandhu and I focus our conversation on how renewable energy can serve as a platform to strengthen India's partnership with the U.S. Specifically, I ask Ambassador Sandhu about how the U.S.-India relationship has evolved over time, what are the key challenges U.S. investors have been communicating to the embassy in terms of being able to enter the Indian energy market, and what policies the government has implemented to make this process more streamlined. Lastly, prior to starting the interview, I'd like to give a special thanks to USIEF, who leads the Fulbright program, Professor Vijay Chariar of CRDT at IIT Delhi, and Anjali Garg, program manager of the IFC Lighting Asia India Initiative who both were instrumental for supporting me during this podcast and enabling it to happen. Thank you. I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Ambassador Tharanjit Sandhu. Thank you so much, Ambassador Sandhu, for taking the time to participate in this interview. And I'd like to start out by asking you, Because of all your extensive experience working between the U.S. and India, I know you've had multiple postings here. So I'd like to ask, could you provide a historical overview from your own firsthand perspective about how the U.S.-India relationship has evolved over time? Certainly, Karan, you know that, you know, we are passing unprecedented times, pandemic, economic situation. So there's a lot of uncertainty. However, I believe that every crisis presents itself with a new opportunity. So it's never the end of the road. The U.S. remains a critical partner for India in meeting the developmental aspirations of 1.3 billion people. And we are collaborating now in, for example, health sector, R&D, S&T, vaccine development, These are uh, some issues which earlier did not get focus in the public. So we are learning from each other's best practices. In fact, given the face-to-face meetings cannot happen, we are interacting with one another through virtually most of the interactions. But my priority in days ahead would be to look at what more we can do together for each other and for the rest of the world. The more we talk, the more we engage, the more we get to know one another, 
the more we build on relationships, and I look at youngsters like you for ideas, we are always open. And as you have mentioned, uh, as you are aware, I've served in D.C. twice before. There are some relationships which have grown over years. I have the privilege of knowing how, to an extent, United States works. And I strongly feel that we are natural partners with shared values. And this relationship is certainly beyond governments. The industry, think tanks, civil society, people on both sides, people like you are the real actors who drive this relationship. So I do feel that we have come a long way. Uh, there is no field of human endeavor where we are not collaborating with each other currently. If you look at the two-way trade figures, investment figures, again, people-to-people ties, any indicator for that matter, it is on upward trajectory. In my year in India, I was very impressed by all of the great work that's being done. It seems like there's been so much change from the times I would visit in the past to then living there and experiencing it. And particularly, as you mentioned, the population seems like very young and very motivated. And I think I heard you say in the past how like this is one of the key areas where the U.S.-India partnership, the future actually is inherent in the young, the young engagements. So particularly, I would just like to briefly ask you, like how you think the population, the younger population of both countries can engage more. See, Karan, as you know, and I'm sure you know from your own experience that uh, uh, when one is young, uh, there is passion. And there is a lot of energy for innovation. And in the current scenario, I think the future belongs to this because of this unprecedented crisis which we are witnessing. And not only in the healthcare sector, but also in IT. In fact, the very fact that we are talking to each other through technology, and uh, I do it all the time, and many times... I mean, I'm giving you a simple example. It gets stuck or something goes wrong. So look at the scope of innovation. And that's why I do feel that the young, it's very important. They are an important bridge between our two countries. And in India also, in small and medium sectors, is one of the key priority areas. Uh, So the prime minister is taking personal interest in that. And our hope is that that will become the driving force. Now, for example, you know, India has about 200,000 young students studying uh, mostly in STEM areas here in the United States. Now, they are another bridge. Many of these uh, kids study here and go back and set up small innovative units. And as you would have seen, you know, look, your uh, clean energy side is where there's so much tremendous scope of uh, innovation, and young can play a very important role. So that's why I have uh, earlier also mentioned to you, so there's a lot of hope and potential amongst this part of population. And if I may just add, you know, in India today, this is the strongest support and the base you have for India-US relationship. I think we have seen whenever presidents of the United States have been to India, This is the young population which comes out. 
and they come out in thousands and thousands because they are aspirational. They see United States in very positive terms, the technology connect, and many of the innovation areas. So that's where I think a lot of people who support innovations, as you know, on the West Coast, there are many who invest in these things. And that's why this is one area where both the countries can connect closely and uh, young will be the key to that. I see. And yeah, just from my experience, I so, I so saw that to be the case. And with respect to renewable energy, in terms of partnering in this area, what can India bring to the table and what can U.S. bring to the table in order to help in the development of clean energy? Like, where do you see the respective strengths of both countries to be? So let me indicate to you about India. First, because uh, U.S., it's very well known for the advantages and scope which you have. And as I have indicated earlier, you know, renewables for India is neither a compulsion nor just an option, but it's our passion. And why I'm saying that is because we believe in following a green path to growth. My prime minister has written a book titled Convenient Action. India has huge energy needs, uh, which provide huge opportunities for U.S. companies. Uh, we welcome U.S. technology and investments, our future. And this is evident from series of initiatives that India has undertaken. We have made voluntary commitments on reducing greenhouse gas emissions intensity of our GDP. We have pledged that 40% of India's power capacity would be based on non-fossil fuel sources. India will create an additional carbon sink through uh, forest and tree cover increase by 2030. In fact, India is one of those few places in the world where forest cover is growing. And India is one of the world's largest renewable energy expansion programs. The installed capacity of renewables in India has grown by 144% in the last six years. We are confident of increasing clean energy capacity of 134 gigawatts, which is going to be 35% of our total to 220 gigawatts by 2023 and to 450 gigawatts by 2030. We have a national policy on biofuel since 2018. Today, a unit of solar power is cheaper than energy generated from coal. That itself speaks in a big way. And you know that we have a close collaboration and we need to further that, especially for energy storage, because that is the critical in solar and many of the other renewables. As you are aware, of course, uh, that along with France, we have launched the International Solar Alliance in 2015. This is a reflection of our commitment for universalizing the use of solar energy under one world, one sun, one great project. We just concluded the first World Solar Technology Summit. It provides new opportunities for many U.S. companies that are engaged in solar energy technology while yielding social and economic gains for the global community. 
We are glad that U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, that is DFC, has announced $600 million financing facility for renewable energy projects in India. So we certainly feel that there's a lot of scope uh, for U.S. companies to get into India. With respect to the one grid, one world's vision, could you talk a little bit to how India sees itself enabling that? Solar energy is concerned. Uh, I think there is not much that I need to explain to you that why India feels that it has a tremendous potential Mm -hmm. uh, because we have solar energy in abundance and we have huge energy requirements. I mean, when I say it's genuinely huge for 130 billion people, you know, for the villages, for our industry, for expansion, for our development purposes, energy is the key to everything. And that's why we did take the initiative of International Solar Alliance. We have been pushing very strongly while the U.S. government has still not come on board as an entity, but the U.S. companies are the leading actors. And when we say one world, one sun, one grid, it means that this is a shared experience and India itself, when we finally reach our full potential, uh, we will be able to, once the storage capacity has developed, because that's one huge challenge in solar investing. Right now, we are only able to undertake certain activities where there is uh, storage available and there's not too much of transportation involved. But ultimately, we hope that through the technology, we can be one grid, first at regional level, I mean, India level, then regional level, and then at the world level. And once that capacity has been achieved, that is, in terms of technology, we feel that... uh, Not only we'll be able to first resolve our problems, but a number of countries. I do know that there is, I have just served in Sri Lanka, and I know that despite being a compact country, still they are aligned during the times when the water level is low. They are actually dependent on what is generated through diesel. So you can imagine if solar energy and if this concept was working as a one unit, so easily we could have transported or transferred. I mean, how much of clean energy will be available and so much of carbon sink, which we talk of. I'm just giving you one small example. Yeah, that, that provided a lot of great clarity. And in terms of enabling storage and also furthering the solar sector and renewable energy sector, not only in India, but regionally and then globally. I know attracting foreign direct investments very important. And as the Indian ambassador to the U.S., are you finding that people are coming to you expressing that there are some challenges in terms of being able to invest 
directly into the market? Like, what are some of the challenges around that finding? See, again, to put things in perspective, uh, India received 42 billion US dollars in FDI in the last uh, 19 and a half years from April 2000 to September 2019. Uh, out of this, about 50%, that is 319 billion in FDI, was received in the last five and a half years. So India's business-friendly environment has made it the second largest recipient of FDI in Asia and among the top 10 FDI recipients globally. Now we received 73 billion in FDI in 2019 and 20. Now on ease of doing business rankings, we are also rising rapidly. Of course, our target remains to be amongst the top 30. Why I gave you this perspective is so that, you know, you see it, the overall picture, how from where we have come to where. Now, foreign investors are taking India's commitment to reform seriously, which again is evident from inflow of FDI, even during the time of COVID-19. Now, between April to July 2020, the FDI into India stood at 20 billion US dollars. Now, India has also undertaken IPR-related reforms. Uh, I know some of these are challenges. That's why I am relating to you in positive sense on what is being done. So I'm sure our national intellectual property rights policy has been put in place. Uh, shortest time taken to grant a patent recently has been 67 days from the day of filing of the request. Over the years, government has not only relaxed FDI reforms, but has undertaken series of tax and labor-related reforms. India offers a transparent and predictable tax regime. Our system encourages and supports honest tax players. Our GST is a unified, fully IT-enabled, indirect tax system. Insolvency and bankruptcy code has reduced risk for the entire financial system. Our comprehensive labor reforms will reduce compliance burden for employers. It will also provide social security protection to workers. So these are some of the undertakings which issue are basically with respect to many of the challenges which are faced. But I must also mention to you that we are continuously, even during the times of COVID, I have spoken to number of uh, industry majors here, as well as uh, small and medium industries, trying to get inputs, including especially in the area of energy and as well as clean energy, so as to get inputs from them and my government that this is the expectation. Uh, whatever challenges they are facing in India, to the extent we can help to minimize those and listen to their uh, problems so that there is uh, we can respond. So these are kind of activities which we are doing. That's really interesting. Have they been able to provide inputs or is that still in process? You know, my uh, energy minister is uh, very, very active. And uh, we have a 
straight direct link here between us and our people as well as so whatever inputs we get. And I am also reaching out one by one to the big actors to here. Apart from doing group distinct, we have reached out to many of the clean energy companies, getting input from them. We're happy if you share your study with us. We will certainly get it looked into. And some of your observations, which you have studied, uh, come across because you have been talking to so many of these people. Uh, we will... Great. Yeah, I'll definitely share them. And spoken to many of the bigger actors in the Indian market and the whole idea behind engaging in this process was to kind of show how attractive of an area India is specifically within clean energy to people in the U.S. who might not be aware so that they don't miss out. But lastly, my final question is, I'm not sure if this has been an input that you've received from actors in the U.S. Just from my own observations and conversations, I know that there's some hesitancy to invest in emerging markets and also India, because while there might be strategic clarity from the central government in this space, there also have been instances where the local and state governments sometimes form commitments and then say if there's a turnover of party, um, they back out of the commitment. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on what you would say to potential investors who have these concerns of the Indian market. So, Karan, firstly, on the issue of what you are, in a sense, uh, alluding to is uh, some kind of an unpredictability. So, we have certainly taken that on board. And in fact, if you see the comments of uh, my prime minister to one of the two, uh, both major U.S. business events he spoke at, he has touched upon this predictability aspect at the federal level. And uh, we are certainly conscious. We are now also in a phase where we are getting our states to interact with your states. Plus, we are also getting our states to interact with some of the business uh, uh, industry majors here, which we are facilitating directly so that the states are making presentations on attracting the business from here to come and invest in their states. And this is what they will lay out for them. You know, so in a sense, you know, creating a competitive, because what you need to remember is that like the United States, India is also a very robust federal polity. So we also, like you have powerful governors in your country, we have powerful chief ministers. But in fact, the COVID crisis has shown uh, how Indian federalism uh, works at its best. You saw, you were in India when the lockdown occurred, how every week my prime minister was taking the initiative and talking to the chief ministers who were involved. And now also with the numbers increasing, we are, wherever the states are finding a challenge, the federal government then to assist them. So I'm just giving you one example of the federal thing. But I also want to underline specifically in response to your question 
that, you know, in partnership with the state governments, the federal government in India is making efforts to streamline business regulations through a single window system, labor law reforms, etc., to improve the ease of doing business environment in the full country. Now, we have created what is a business reform action plan, rankings of the state. Now, the recent ones were released on 5th September 2020. Now, these are based on the implementation of the business reforms action plan. This is an effort to create competition amongst the states so that they become responsive to investments, attracting investments. And what I told you we are doing here as an embassy, creating a platform for each state. Now, we had Karnataka chief minister coming on. We had the deputy chief minister of Maharashtra coming on, uh, their investment, interacting directly with the business. So those are uh, some, I'm also talking to governors of the states here, encouraging them, telling them these are the areas where in India you can invest, taking into account what are the comparative advantages for each state. So that's kind of uh, this thing. So as I told you that the objective of the action plan, which uh, the business reform action plan, to actually lay out series of reforms targeted at increasing transparency and improving the efficiency and effectiveness of the regulatory framework and services for business in India. And the ranking this time gives full weightage to the feedback from over 30,000 respondents at the ground level who gave their opinion about the effectiveness of the reforms. So some of the states have shown extraordinary energy in putting together action plans and making sure that the reforms happen. So the ease of doing business rankings of the state are a reflection of the efforts made by the states. The rankings are competitive. And uh, this by the Indian Commerce Minister recently himself pointed out that India is amongst the very few nations that has begun the state-specific rankings, which will in turn help the overall federal promises which are uh, being uh, kept. And the state governments in India are now being very much made part of the reforms being undertaken for improving business climate. So therefore, the question of uh, backing down from commitments in the future will not arise. Thank you so much, Ambassador Sandhu. Thank you for all of your time today. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And do check out the show notes for more information on my guest. See you next time.